Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible, a podcast where we take a deep dive into biblical topics in a way that's easy to understand. If you'd like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and subscribe to the Let's Read the Bible Together reading plan. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And as usual, if you're reading along with us or listening along even and you have questions, I would love for you to do us a favor and send in those questions to us. Uh, we try to make time every week uh, as best we can and take time to answer those questions. Uh, sorry for the bad sentence, but we'd love for you to send us those questions. There's two ways you can do it. One uh, is via email. You, the email address is info at grove.church. Uh, make sure you put in the subject line. It's a, a Let's Read the Bible podcast question or podcast question. Uh, so we make sure that those get uh, sent to us directly. Uh, or the other way you can send us those questions is a direct message on the Facebook. Uh, and yes, I said the Facebook. The but, Facebook. Uh, we are the Grove Church in Washington State. You can find us on Facebook as and send uh, us your questions via direct message there. Um, so this week we are continuing our conversation uh, through the book of Matthew and through the book of Job. Uh, and I really do hope that you enjoy it. I know, I know Evan said this at the end of our last podcast. We felt like we went a little long. Um, but there's just conversations that sometimes take a long time. So I don't ever feel bad about going long. That's just me. Um, but uh, we got to intro Job last week. We get to continue Job this week. And I'm, I'm just as thrilled as I know you are. Um, but before we jump into Job, I'm going to actually... Hit us uh, up with the Matthew content first. We are going to be reading chapters 16 to 24 this week. Uh, and just a quick recap and reminder, uh, the way that I, I've kind of taken is what the essence of the New Testament uh, breakdown as far as how it break, the book of Matthew breaks down to the three parts. The first part was the person of Jesus, chapter 1 through chapter 417, which we hit last week. Uh, part 2 was the proclamation of Jesus, uh, in essence, him you know, his coming out as the Messiah, his ushering the kingdom. Uh, and we saw that in chapter four, verse 17 to 16, verse 20. So we're going to hit the last part of Jesus' proclamation about who he is and what he's come to do and the the identity of who he is. Uh, and then we're going to hit uh, the book of part three, which is the passion and authority of Jesus and how the essence of the New Testament breaks it down. And so uh, chapter 16 to 24 is our content this week. Uh, we'll, we'll start off right away as we jump into chapter 16, uh, just talking about the identity of, of the Messiah. This is where uh, part of this section is where we see um, Peter confessing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of, the, of God. Uh, and we we see this moment where, it, I mean, I've heard it all the time growing up in church, but this idea of Jesus asked this question to his followers, who do, who do you say that I am? First, he asks, who do they, everybody say I am? And they compare him to a prophet, a great teacher. Uh, and then he turns a question on his disciples says, who, who do you say I am? And that's where Peter says, uh, you are the Christ, the son of, the, of God. Which is probably like, is that his high point in the gospels, Peter? It's pretty close. Not counting I, acts. I, I would say his high point is more that moment of faith of walking in water. Yeah. That'd be my perspective. But um, either way, it's a significant moment. Mm -hmm. And Jesus even affirms like that's not been revealed to Peter because of Peter, but that's been revealed to Peter by, by the Holy Spirit um, and bringing a greater revelation. Um, so we see this moment in chapter 16, not just of the identity of the Messiah, but then you also see that the flip side to it in chapter 16, 21 to 17, 27 is this idea that the Messiah is going to suffer. Uh, and he foretells uh, his death and resurrection twice in this section. Um, and it's it's pretty remarkable that the disciples, he has to repeat it multiple times because the disciples don't get it. Right. It, it doesn't make sense to them. Um, and so he's, he's hitting that point. He'll talk about I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to, have to, there's going to be suffering that I have to deal with. I'm going to, you know, die and raise again. Uh, and that's part of this section too. In fairness to the disciples too, I think um, Jesus so often speaks in parables and riddles that I, I can imagine that's that true. when he's like, I'm going to die and rise again, they're just, they're just like, I wonder what he means by that. Like, what could, what's he trying huh? to tell us when he's actually just trying to straight up tell them like, no, 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 like literally I'm going to die and rise again. Yeah. Well, I, I even love, I mean, this is I mean, something we've just gone through as a church, a couple different, you know, sessions of our, our discipleship season at the church. Um, but the the book of Irresistible by Andy Stanley, one of the things that he actually says in the book is, is, I mean, Evan, I think you've said it in, in a message. I've said it at different times. But like if my brother were to tell me, or oh, yeah. someone that I follow were to tell me, hey, I'm going to die and, and, and rise again. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at my brother and be like, what? Who are you? What do you, you know, and... And not to be crass about it, like, what are you smoking? What are you doing? Like, are, are you are you high on something? Like, there's, there's something off with that statement. And so Jesus, with his closest followers, his closest disciples, he's having these dialogues. And so it's not surprising to me that there's a little bit of, that there's a lot of confusion, I think, that the disciples don't understand. And so 
Um, but this is part of that passage. So you see these interactions with the disciples uh, and you see you see Jesus have these moments of, hey, this is going to happen. Just I, trying to prepare his his followers, trying to prepare his disciples that this is going to happen. So, mm-hmm. um, and again, we know this and he attaches the suffering idea of the suffering servant, the suffering Messiah. This is what the Messiah must do and go through. And, and he's beginning to reveal who he is. Um, and he's bringing his, his followers along. We also get probably one of my favorite exchanges um, in, in the book of Matthew is this moment of the transfiguration, but then also, um, they come down from this mount, mountain of Peter, James, and John, Jesus takes them up to this mountain and this transfiguration moment happens where, um, Moses and Elijah and Jesus is transfigured. And it's one of like the divine moments that exist in the gospels. Jesus is a fully man, but there's also divine moments. Uh, and this is one of those moments. And so Peter, James, and John are there just in awe. Um, Peter makes a suggestion Hey, we should build shelters for you three, and almost like a, a, mem- a memorial, a, mem- uh, a way to remember. But also at the same time, they didn't—they desired not to leave that moment, and so that was part of the reason. Besides shelters, like, hey, we're going to build shelters for you, and she's like, no, there's still work to be done. <laughs> we got to go down the mountain. Um, so, have this incredible moment. God says, "This is my son. Listen to him." Uh, and then they come down from the mountain. This is what I want to read real quick because I just—it's such a, a, a challenging and profound passage, but I think it's so significant and, and pretty brilliant when it comes to. Uh, this this portion right after transfiguration, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus walk down this mountain where they had just pulled aside where Jesus interacts with Moses and Elijah. Uh, and it says this in chapter 17, verses 14 to 21. It says, and when they came to the crowd, uh, so they came down this mountain and there was a crowd present. So they came to the crowd. There was always a crowd. There's Jesus. always a crowd, right? Until he t- told them to pick up the cross and follow him. Then they started leaving him. But True. Uh, it says this, a man came up to him and kneeling before him, this is Jesus that the man was kneeling to said, Lord, have mercy on my son. He has seizures and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him. The boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why would we not, why could we not cast it out? And this is, this is interesting because you have this moment of Jesus almost rebuking, not just, it seems like he's rebuking his disciples, but he's not just rebuking his disciples. He's rebuking the, the, the reality of the lack of faith and the lack of recognition of what Christ has come to do, the kingdom that God is, is, is ushering in through Jesus. Um, and so he's in this moment of frustration of like, I'm done. Like, let's go. Like, let's, let's see my kingdom come, like God's kingdom come. And so he rebukes the demon. It comes out, the boy is healed instantly. And then the disciples like, why couldn't, why couldn't we do it? Jesus. Uh, and so Jesus simply said, because your faith is, or your, because of your little faith for truly, I say to you, if you have faith, like a grain of a mustard seed, you will say this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And the interesting thing here is, is it's not about the quantity of faith. It's not about, I need a lot of faith over a lot of time, but it's about like the deep assurance of God, you can do anything and you've given authority to me. And remember, this is after Jesus has sent out his 12 disciples. So they've already operated in ministry at time. They've Mm -hmm. already done certain things. So they come to this moment where they can't uphold or can't execute, and it's a bad way to say it, um, but they, they don't see this deliverance happen for this family and for the son, uh, but Jesus is, is really intentional to to draw back to them and to himself. It's by faith in me and what Christ is doing. And so, yeah, I think it's not a coincidence that the disciples really don't begin their ministry in earnest until after the resurrection and yep. the ascension. And I think it's it's this idea of like we just talked about how like when Jesus is saying I'm going to die and rise again, they don't really get what he's saying. I don't think the disciples truly understand yeah. who Jesus is, and I don't think it clicks with them until. The resurrection happens and all of a sudden like wait a second and i think they, they kind of it's uh, this is another thing I'm, I'm fond of saying when i speak and just in general it's one thing to academically know something it's another thing to really believe it in your heart and so i think like you know when when peter declares you are the christ the son of the living god that's something that he's saying uh but when does he actually start to truly understand like oh this is true like yeah. no this is actually something i fully believe yeah and i think it also shows there's a dependency of the disciples on jesus right now they have Jesus present. They're learning from him. He's their rabbi. He's their teacher. He's the one that they're devoting their life to follow and emulate and model. But Jesus's point um, throughout his his ministry is there's one coming that's greater. In in right now, so there's a limitation almost in 
in proximity to Jesus, where Jesus has said later on in the gospels that it's better for you if I leave. And so they don't, they don't understand the significance that's needed to see God's power move without the Holy Spirit. Like there is this, this lack of understanding and awareness. And so Jesus is in this dual tension of trying to lead and guide, but at the same time release and see his disciples do and model the life that he's lived. So there is this, this recognition in me, even after I'm processing, you know, this week or whatever with this passage is the tension that exists in the safety net that is Jesus, but the, the call to go through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, I think is really significant. Uh, and so there's just this beautiful, incredible exchange where Jesus steps up, performs work and his disciples in humility, which I think is so good too, respond. And Jesus calls him, like says, it's your faith. Like you have to have faith. So, mm-hmm. um, it really is challenging and, and thought provoking for me today as well. Um, but anyways, we'll move on. It, it continues in chapter 18 to 20, where it talks about the community, the kingdom of the Messiah. Uh, this is probably um, one of the more, I, I, I had not caught this before um, in the book of Matthew, uh, but the whole idea of who's the greatest in the kingdom. Uh, there's in chapter 18, we're going to see this argument breaking out among Jesus' disciples is like, well, who's the greatest? Um, and they have this discussion, this argument about who they think will be greater. Um, and Jesus he just kind of explains to them, like, serve. Like, you, the greatest among you will serve, be, be the last, and, and will serve. Uh, and then we fast forward to chapter 20 in this section. And we actually see this mother's request uh, in chapter 20 I want to read because uh, I don't know if I ever picked up on the, the chapter 18 connection to chapter 20, but it says this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, which is James and John, uh, also referred to as the sons of thunder. Great nickname. Um, Sons approached him with her sons. So in essence, she brings her sons to Jesus, kneels down and at, to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to me, that these two sons of mine may sit one at your right and the other on your left in your kingdom. In other words, the mom is asking Jesus for these two individuals to be the greatest in the kingdom. That's what she's asking. By having, say, in the kingdom where you let him sit on your right and your left, it's it's a it's a seat of honor. It's a seat of uh, authority. It's a seat of high um, high visibility. And so she's asking on behalf of her sons that uh, he he give them permission to sit on the right left. Jesus answered her in verse twenty two. Says this: You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm able to drink? We are able. They said to him. If only they knew. Uh, <laughs> he told them, You will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right and my left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the 10 disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Fair enough. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> they just had this argument among themselves. Jesus, you know, I would say lovingly rebuked them um, about what it looks like to be the greatest in the kingdom. Then the mom jumps in and asks Jesus on behalf of her two sons. And so then the the, the other 10 is like, what's going on? Like, I could just see this like little, like this brotherly squabble or whatever break out. And so Jesus called them over and said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and those in high positions that act as tyrants over them. It must not be like you, like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for money. And so we, many, not money. Um, so we see this, this tension and it's, it's just kind of a, a funny moment for me as I'm, as I was reflecting and looking through the book of Matthew is this, this moment of the disciples having this internal conversation that Jesus overhears. The mom bring, makes it a public conversation with her two sons. And then Jesus' statement is much the same. Serve the best. The first will be last. Uh, We'll see the continue the idea of kingdom community, chapter 21 to 23. We'll see the, Jesus, the Messiah, asserts his authority over Jerusalem. This is where the triumphal entry comes into play. This is where we see him begin to like clear out the temple and, and talk about the temple. Um, go ham, you might yeah. say. Yep, go ham. On, <laughs> yep, go ham. That's, that's so funny. I think it was a couple of weeks ago you said that. I was like, what? Um, and then we see this too. And I think it's interesting, uh, the cursing of a fig tree uh, and and it's interesting because you see this account also in the, in the book of Mark uh, about cursing a fig tree, but it's very concise in the book of Matthew. It's it's more chronological, meaning it happens, uh, the cursing potentially happens. I think one of the scholars that, that I read was saying it was like a Monday is when the cursing happened and the disciples didn't see the fig tree till Tuesday. Uh, Matthew just combines the two things to give you a quick, concise thing. Um, uh, but it says this in, in uh, Matthew chapter 21. 
Um, it says, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And after seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, how did this fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, truly, I say to you, if you have the faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even say, if you say this mountain, be taken up and thrown to the sea, it will happen. But whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And so we see in Mark that it's actually spread out over two days uh, because there's a coming into the city. Jesus sees this fig tree and then there's a leaving the city when he's done the next day and they see the fig tree wither. But Mark, Matthew just brings it down to a very concise thing. Uh, and, and it's interesting because the question that I remember asking all the time is why, why is a fig tree significant? Why is it cursed? Why, why does that matter? Um, and, and this is the reason why is because the fruit of a fig tree would actually appear about the same time as a leaf. So whenever the leaf showed up, the fruit would be showing up. So there's this appearance of fruitfulness when Jesus looks at this tree from a distance. And so Jesus curses it because it has the appearance of fruitfulness, but actually isn't producing fruit. And there's a powerful symbolism here for, for us today, for the disciples yeah. in that moment too, of we can have the appearance of fruitfulness by the outward appearance and the outward acts, but the fruitfulness really exists from a healthy inward, uh, spiritual, robust discipline and lifestyle. And so it's this tension that I think is it's so profound and I almost feel really kind of inferior for a moment, but just to remember like, okay, God, it's not about my outward, it's about my my fruit. And so Lord, even in those moments, I feel like I'm not producing fruit, help me to be healthy enough to produce fruit in the right time so I don't have this appearance. So anyways, Jesus curses it because of the appearance of fruit, but no fruit is actually there. Um, and so it wasn't just, I hate this tree, curse you tree, but it was also very symbolist, sim, symbolic, 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 thank you, symbolic moment welcome. <laughs> uh, that Jesus had with his disciples going into the city and coming out of the city. Um, you see controversies in the temple court. He's being questioned and challenged. Um, and this is where you start to see this passion and authority come into play. Obviously, in chapter 16, we start that. But you see more and more his authority as the Messiah is coming to the front. His, his, his controversial moments with the Pharisees and religious leaders has come to the forefront. So you see that through. And he even, I mean, he point blank, seven woes. This is a, this is a very phenomenal thing where he point blank calls out the Pharisees uh, and, and speaks seven woes over them. Uh, and then we have this moment that he laments over the city of Jerusalem. Um, and, and this is the last thing I'm going to read. It's only a couple of verses in chapter 23, verse 37 to 38. And he just says this. He says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus has this moment. Uh, that he just uh, obviously laments because that's part of what the, the the heading is, but he he cries out for the city of Jerusalem. This is the city of God. This is this is the city that was meant to be a light shining on the hill. This was a city that was meant to be established as an influence, as a a, a representation of God's favor, God's provision, God's call. And they they're rejecting God's people. They're rejecting God's prophets and God's voice. They they've rejected Him. Yeah. And, and he's also it's also kind of a prophetic thing where he's knowing what's coming and he has this moment of, of lament where he cries out and and he, he he's sorrowful over his people's rejection and they're wandering away uh from god's um god's call and god's ele- election i guess if you can say yeah. it that way and there's really been there's been two times in history where <clears throat> people in our faith tradition i guess you could call it have really loved a city like this. And it's been Jerusalem and Rome. And both times it doesn't work out too well. I think there's there's almost, um, idolatry might be the wrong word, but it's this idea of before Jerusalem falls to, to Babylon, there's this idea that, no, it's God's city. It's never going to fall. Mm-hmm. Like he's always going to protect it. And God's like, hey, listen, it's a city. It's, yep. And then with Rome, it's the same way where um, I think it's Augustine who has to write and he's explained to people like why, yeah, Rome can fall. It's not like it's not the end of Christianity, but for a lot of people, it was like, that was now the new center of Christianity. Yep. And now it had fallen to uh, the Visigoths. Maybe I don't remember. I don't remember. Alaric was the guy's name, but um, it's just this whole, yeah, it's this whole idea of we always slip into the very human temptations to idolize things 
over God because, and I think part of it is just because it's God's, you know, it's hard to comprehend Yeah, and we want something a little bit more concrete, I suppose you could say, but you know, whether it's the golden calf or um, any number of different things, Baal, yeah. um, not Molech, Molech's the worst. <laughs> He's uh, the worst of the worst. Uh, um, but yeah, I think we, we constantly find ourselves slipping into that temptation, even in a modern sense. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, yeah, bring it to the modern day. Absolutely. I think we, we in our, our Christian faith at times think that um, God has established, dare I say it, like as America. Like yeah, it's true. Some we, people. We have this this perspective, like we are God's blessed nation. Um, and, and America can fall just like Jerusalem did, just like Rome did. God does not, and, and this is the beauty of, and one of the things I appreciate that we even as a church body wrestle through the idea um, or the whole idea of the church, like the church is not a building just like God's people is not a nation. Um, and that's what the, that's what the gospels is revealing is not just this, this, this election that exists for a people of God, but it's, it's all nations are people of God. And he calls us to himself. And, and when we, when we prioritize or place a nation up as God's chosen instrument, we miss it because it's not about a nation. It's about God's people across the world, around the globe, ushering in his, his kingdom through grace and love and truth and being able to see that play out because there's only, there's only times that, I mean, there's only yeah. short windows of time. So there was, there was one time where God made a covenant with a nation and that, and that was Israel and it's over now. Yeah. Like that's that, called that, old Testament. And that was it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So anyways, so we see this lament and I think it's very powerful and significant to stop and reflect about, man, Jesus is really heartbroken over his people because they've rejected him. It's not even the, it's not even the nation of, of Israel or, uh, the city itself, but it's as a people, you have rejected me. You've rejected God. You have done your own thing and gone your own way and held tightly to the wrong thing. Um, and so you see this lament that exists in in, in Christ's uh, two verses of his, his his lament there, his cry out, his prayer. Uh, and then we wrap up this week with chapter 24. This will this will tell the foretelling of the, the, the destruction of the temple. Um, he's going to say this temple is going to be destroyed in three days. It'll be built again. It's a kind of a controversial statement with the Pharisees um, and the religious leaders. You talk, he talks about the signs of the end. This is also where we get uh, the passage where it just says, no, I, no, no one knows the time or the day when God returns. No one's going to know that. So, and all the things that we, but, I used to laugh at. But Aaron, I October have, 21st. I found the code in the Bible. <laughs> yeah. I know exactly when he's coming back. Nope, not true. Oh, um, so uh, very, very blatant. Jesus is very blatant that no one's going to know the day or the time. When, when Christ returns, when he will return, where God shows back up, uh, it, it, it brings back the fig tree illustration, not from Jesus's blessing and, or cursing of the fig tree, but he talks about the fig tree and, and the reality of uh, the, the lessons we can learn from it. Agriculture is a big thing in ancient times. Uh, so Jesus leverages that too. And so that's kind of, we wrap up the book of Matthew this week. Uh, next week, we'll actually finish the book of Matthew, um, but that's kind of a quick overview of Matthew for this week's readings. There be. Well, before we continue on into Job, uh, you know, if you've been enjoying this podcast and you'd like to help us out, you know what would really help us out? A nice review, listeners, a five-star review, an uh, Apple podcast. You can even write one out. That'd be swell. And if you write one out, we'll read it on the show because that's just the kind of guys that we are. So <laughs> anyway, if you if you feel so compelled, listeners, go go for it. Yeah, we would love for you to fill it out. Well, this week we are continuing on in Job. I will also say thank you to Aaron for taking kind of the brunt of the podcast this week as, I, as I'm as i I'm a sickly boy today and my voice is, I guess I'm not, I don't feel too sick, but my voice is just shot. Your voice so. sounds worse than you feel. Yeah, that is accurate. So I'm going to be a little bit more soft-spoken. Maybe I'll talk slower. I've been told that I talk too fast sometimes. Oh, I talk just so, as fast, yeah. if not faster. So. Yeah. So, you know, we'll just, we're going to have a nice chill walk through the book of Job listeners. Uh, so this week, we're still knee-deep, waist-deep in the arguments of Job and his friends. And we meet Zophar. Uh, Zophar is kind of the worst. <laughs> <laughs> so Bill, uh, sorry, Eliphaz is the kindest of the friends. And obviously, he, go, he goes downhill. By the time you get to his third speech, you're like, dude, what are you even talking about right now? Um, Bildad is kind of an interesting character. He Where Eliphaz kind of appeals to... Um, revelation like there's in his first speech he has this whole bit about how he feels like god revealed to him truth in in the midst of a dream um which i actually do think that god might have shown something to him but i think he just misinterprets it bildad kind of appeals to the wisdom of the ancients uh it's is kind of his whole shtick and then he's also this is i don't know it's, it's just a weird character trait but he, he just loves plants 
So like, I don't know, he's a botany enthusiast, but almost all of Bildad's metaphors are, it's like this plant, Job, or like this plant, this roots. So whatever. Zophar, he just kind of jumps right in. He's not really, yeah, he's not really polite at all. And this could either be because he he's probably the youngest because it makes sense that they speak in the order because that's kind of just what you would do in ancient Semitic culture. So maybe he's a little bit more brash than the other two. It could also be that he's been sitting in silence, listening to Job refute the other friends. And so by the time it gets to his turn, he gets mad. So maybe he's not like, you know, fully the worst. Yeah, maybe he's not as bad as we actually think he is, but yeah, perce- perception is almost everything. So that's a, that's a big thing too. So good old Zophar. Oh man. So anyway, where Eliphaz and Bildad at least start off polite, Zophar just gets aggressive <laughs> and he stays aggressive the whole way too. Come at me, bro. Um, but also I love that he just, he's not the smartest of the friends either. And because he, he so here's, I'm just going to read this for you listeners and let's see if we can spot the logical flaw in his argument here. He says, for you say, my doctrine is pure and I am clean in God's eyes, but oh, that God would speak and open his lips to you and that he would tell you the secrets of wisdom for he is manifold in understanding. Know then that God exacts of you less than your guilt deserves. All right. So that's point number one. Point number two, this is the next verse. Can you find out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limit of the almighty? It is higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Its measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. So in the first verses, so far as like, listen, here's the deal with God. He's actually doing less than what you deserve. What he's implying there is that he knows <laughs> what God is doing. And then in the next verse, he's like, you can't hope to know what God is doing. So I don't know. I just think it's funny because so far is just kind of, I don't know. He's just throwing spaghetti at the wall and st- seeing what sticks. Hey, sometimes you have to, okay? Sometimes you have to throw stuff at the wall and just let something stick. Mm-hmm. Doesn't always work. Oh man! So Zophar's first speech it concludes the same way as the other two friends. Um, they all and this I think is important. They all offer Job a way out, and they call on him to repent. And so, and again, the speeches kind of go downhill. So when we get to the second and third ones, it's not exactly this triumph of friendship. But what they're clearly trying to do here, at least in the beginning, is give Job some tough love, and saying, "Look, you're suffering." We all know, Job, the only reason you would be suffering is because you have sin in your life. So you need to repent of that and turn back to God is what they're trying to do. The issue is that Job doesn't. Um, And that's not to say Job is perfect, because I think that's kind of one of the mistakes that we can make of reading Job. But he certainly is, he's described as God, by God as being, uh, not as God, that's heretical. (laughs) He's described (laughs) by God as being blameless and upright. And so when he's arguing that, no, I don't have a sin that would have caused this. He's, he's being truthful. That's not an arrogant statement that he's making. Um, and I put, yeah, of course, this would actually be good advice if Job were, were a sinner. So if, if Job actually was the man that his friends think he was, they would actually be doing the most loving thing for him in this moment on, for calling on him to repent. Um, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but it's a very subtle temptation because if Job were to lie and repent of something that he didn't do, mm-hmm in order to just get God's blessings back. And that's the, that's the way it's framed. All of the friends frame it as, here's your suffering that you're going through. If you turn back to God, then this will happen. And they just talk about his life being restored. They talk about the joy that he would, all these different things. So the, the implied motivation for Job to repent would be, get back what God used to give you. And if Job did that, the Satan would be proved right yeah. and God's honor would actually, would, would be at risk there. So it's, it's, it's interesting. Um, in chapters 12 through 14, Job replies to the assertions of his friends. And so this is the end of the first cycle and kind of the kickoff of the first, of the second. Um, he reminds them of who he is. And so again, like his claims aren't arrogant, like Yahweh has declared that Job is blameless and upright. Um, and then as his speech goes on, we see that his argument is that because God is the, is the one who is allowed all of this to happen, a direct appeal to God is his only hope. So the whole idea is, and this also, this is something I think is really important. The Satan is a major character in the beginning of the book, and then he's never heard from again. Mm-hmm. And so it is it is assumed by all of the friends, and, and I should say correctly assumed, that this stuff is happening because God has allowed it to happen. Um, they don't blame, like you never hear Job talk about how evil the Chaldeans are who came and killed 
uh, whatever, or all any of the different raiders, um, you never hear them talk about the Satan. They they specifically direct all of the all of the questioning is about is about God, which I think is appropriate for this because it is true. Like none of this happens if God doesn't allow it to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which I think just yeah, uh, just to I'll jump see. in, I think it's an important distinction because I don't know how many times I hear it. You know, just in in general pastoral council pastoral meetings, at times like God is doing this. Um, and, and I think sometimes like I, I, I land more on the God allows things to happen, mm-hmm. uh, which he uses to glorify his name. I don't, I don't necessarily always buy into God's doing this to me. Um, I think we see different instances of that in the old Testament, Pharaoh, he hardened God, Pharaoh's heart, mm-hmm. things like that. But I think there's moments where even in this conversation, like to the righteous, God, God allows things at times to happen. And, and most times there's a, there's a purpose in mind, like God, God's intention was to test his faith, but also reveal and show that the the strength of Job's faith at the end of everything. And so, um, so there is a, a, a piece to be said about the idea of like God allows stuff to happen, mm-hmm. and there's we don't we'll always understand. We won't always understand. Um, but I'm, I'm not convinced right now um, so far, and it may change later on. But I don't know if like, but I, I just don't think God does things um, for punishment sake in regards to specifically like the, his followers, his believers, but, yeah. um, just in general, I think God allows stuff to happen because his heart is to glorify and, and call all, all man unto himself. But, well, and one of the answers to Job that we get that isn't in the book of Job, it's in Romans is the idea that when Paul says, for we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. It's Romans eight. Um, yeah. And, uh, I always forget the chapter number, so I just say in Romans, but... It's like 828 or something like 828? that. 828, yeah. You'd think that'd be easier for me to remember. It's okay. That's what, what you, I'm here for, bro. What are you going to do? Um, but there is, yeah, there is this faith that... Because the the what that verse is saying is not God will only allow good things to happen to yeah. you. It's saying that everything that happens, God is going to work it together for your good. And even in... I can't... Is well, it, and it's for those who are called... Those who are love God and are called according to his purpose. True. Yeah. Like that's the filter and that's the, that's the qualifier to that promise. And we can hold on to new Testament promise. Well, I know God's working for my good, but the qualifier is, do you actually love God? And are, are you called now? I believe those who follow Jesus say yes to Jesus. I, I believe people are called. I don't have any doubt about that, uh-huh. but I, I can't answer the, do you love God filter? Only, only really God knows our hearts, but we can only answer that. So even when I pray and I pray for different circumstances and situations for people, and I, I oftentimes quote that verse, but I'll follow it up with the qualifier. Like for, we know God works in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's the verse. And so I think that there's that layer to it as well, because it's not God works for the good in all things for all people. Right. God works for the good in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And so that's that's some of the tension that I think exists in, in humanity as well. And your good is not always painless circumstances either. It's true. If the, if the disciples had Job's worldview... The, the the more they serve God faithfully, the worse their lives got. Yeah, and so I do think that's an important thing as well. I mean, but, they lost their lives for crying out loud. Yeah, but the the greater I mean, now it's kind of a rabbit trail. I'm sorry, but the greater the greater thing they clung to is eternity and the and the promise and hope of eternity, and that's something. I and mean, we talk about all the time in the podcast that we need a greater sense and greater picture of eternity. Yeah, today than ever before. I mean, even as I'm reading through Second Corinthians right now, personally. Paul had a great view of eternity and it changed and transformed everything he did and how he lived his life. And so I think that that's, that's something we miss a little bit today in modern Christianity. Mm-hmm. Anyways, so back to Job. Yeah. A bit of a rabbit trail, but I, I, it was a good conversation. Um, I think we're going to get here to one of the major flaws in Job's thinking. And so, and here's the thing. I, there's a really weird balance with Job because he's described as blameless and upright. And we're told in the beginning that he did not, he did not curse God. He did not sin in what he said about God. So in the, but in the poetry, there are things that happen that Job has to repent for. So spoilers at the very end, Job will end up repenting before God. Um, and so I think this is one of those things. Job has the idea that if he could just speak to God, he would change his mind. So what he's implying there is that there is information that Yahweh is not aware of, that if he, <laughs> if he were made aware yep. of it, then all of a sudden his circumstances would change. So like, it's, oh, Job, I didn't know. Right. Okay. Yeah. You win. But like, literally he, 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 and he uses this language of a courtroom very often. Like he wants to stand before God. Um, I can't remember what chapter it is, but there's chapters where he talks about, it's kind of like the Micah passages where it says like the mm-hmm. hills will be my witnesses. Like that's kind of what Job does, where it's just like, he calls out on creation. He says, they will all bear witness to me on this. Um, but his idea is he can stand before God and say, here's my life. Here's what I lived. 
the suffering that I'm walking through is wrong. And Yahweh would be like, you're right. My bad. My bad. Yeah. Shoot. (laughs) So it's, it's a, it's actually, it's a very arrogant uh, stance that Job is taking, but yeah, his hope is that his record of righteousness will put an end to his suffering. Um, In chapter 15, we get, we kick off the second uh, cycle of speeches. And then here's the deal. The, the decorum that Eliphaz showed in his first speech is decidedly lacking here as he begins. So this is how he starts it off. And this is Eliphaz speaking to Job. He says, should a wise man answer with windy knowledge and fell his, fill his belly with the east wind? Should he argue an unprofitable talk or in words with which he can do no good? But you are doing away with the fear of God and hindering meditation before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Your own lips testify against you. So Eliphaz is getting mad about what Job is. There's also... <laughs> One of the weird themes in Job is that they always call each other like windbags. <laughs> it's kind of just like, they're just like, you're just a bunch of hot air. Um, this also made me, when, when I was researching all this, it, the East Wind is really interesting to me because, and this will come as no surprise to you, it's in, it's in Tolkien. And so there's like, in the passage where Boromir dies, they all, spoilers, <laughs> they, they all, what? I know. Uh, they start to sing about the different winds. Like they do a lamenting poem for mm-hmm. Boomer and the, but in the last one is like the East wind and Gimli's like, Oh, I'm not going to sing about the East wind. And then that's it. But that's where they leave it. They don't ever explain what's happening. Yeah. And so in that world, it's because, you know, East is where like kind of the evil is in Job's world. The East wind was where the desert was. And so when the wind blew in from the East, it was actually bad for crops because mm-hmm. it was, there was no nutrients. There wasn't very much moisture. It was just a dry wind. Yep. That was at worst useless, or sorry, at best useless, at worst could actually damage your crops. And so when he's saying that you're full of the east wind, he's basically saying that what you're saying is just pointless yeah. and damaging. So it's kind of, and then. Well, and there's symbolism throughout the Old Testament anyway, as well that talks about the winds. And there's, um, I wish I, I wish I knew it off the top of my head. I remember doing this, you know, kind of worked through it a little bit years ago. Um, but there's purpose to the north wind, the south wind, the east wind, the west wind. There's purpose to all of them. So when they're referenced in, in scripture, they have a certain um, attachment or descriptive nature to them as well. So the east wind does carry that mm-hmm. poison damage. Like it's not a good thing. Um, it's actually a really harmful thing. Um, but I can't remember uh, what the other winds are. So it's kind of a rabbit trail that I don't have answers to. But just just so you know, like it's not poetic necessarily only. There right. is some meaning behind the the... the the, the, the phrasing as well. Well, and, and Barfield would argue that there's a, uh, sorry, I just, is that I, Mr. Owen Barfield? Yeah, I was, I finished poetic diction, but the it, only reason why I say Mr. Owen is because I saw the book in your hand this morning when we were walking. Oh, out, so. did you? Yeah. <laughs> but his, his whole shtick in that book is basically about how like the metaphor of poetry has a deeper meaning to it than yep. we realize. So it's, kind of, yeah, it was, it's not all rhyme. It was a pomp. good, it was a good read. Uh, sorry. Anyway, but now we're really getting off on rabbit trails. Uh, so, Eliphaz launches into his argument, which is that Job does not fear God, and this is evidenced by his rejection of God's punishment. So because Job is not willing to just accept his punishment and repent, this means that he rejects God as Mm -hmm. well. Um, Again, Eliphaz will not even consider for a second the idea that Job is innocent in his suffering. That that is not a thing that he is willing to – that's not a place he's willing to go. Um, Here's what's interesting. He makes some correct points in his speech when he claims that no one can be righteous before God. However, he doesn't follow this argument to his lo- its logical conclusion, which is therefore they would actually all deserve Job's suffering. So Eliphaz makes some correct points because he literally talks about how, um, how, how can a man be in the right before God? And the answer really is without Jesus, well, you can't. Um, but Eliphaz, is, he doesn't, like I said, he doesn't take that point to its logical conclusion where he mm-hmm. would say, well, actually, then none of us are in the right before God. He's kind of only using that for Job there in a little bit. Um, and then he launches a new tactic and this is what all the friends are going to do in the second speeches. Um, they describe the wicked person. So there's the wicked man is kind of a character and they're like, Oh, let me tell you, Job, let me tell you about the wicked man. And then you can kind of imagine them being like, after they describe it's like, now Job, does any of this, does any of this sound familiar <laughs> to you? Cause they're kind of, what they're trying to do is show Job that he is the wicked man because this is the, this is the fate. It's so. asking for a friend kind of vibe. Yeah, it's kind of yeah, it's kind of it's a little it's a I'm little speaking pa- on behalf of a friend. It's a little passive aggressive, but this is just to give you an example. So this is in 15 uh starting in verse 20. The wicked man writhes in pain all of his days through all the years that are laid up 
for the ruthless. Again, remember, yes. Job is in pain currently. Yes. Like this, he's, he's pots. Yep. He's scraping pottery on his sores. Uh, dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. Okay. Who, hey, Job, you're in prosperity and the destroyer came for yeah. you. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, Similar? He, yes. he does not believe that he will return out of darkness. He is marked for the sword. Job thinks that he's going to die soon. Uh, he wanders abroad for bread saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like the king, like a king ready for battle because he has stretched out his hand against God and he defies the almighty running stubbornly against him in a, with a thickly bossed shield because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist. Well, that's, I mean, that's just hurtful, but all right. <laughs> and has lived in desolate cities and houses, which none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruins, much like Job's place probably looks like right now. He will not be rich. His wealth will not endure like Job's wealth, yep. uh, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry up his shoots and by the breath of his mouth, he will depart. It almost feels like his friends are taking his circumstances and saying, hey, this is just, this is indicative of a wicked man. And uh, like, it's almost, like, they're not even trying. They're just, they're just recast or recounting everything going on with Job in that moment yeah. and saying, this is all wicked. And this is the, the, the results of a wicked man. I know they're trying to allude to the fact that he's a wicked man, but it's, it almost feels like it's no effort. They're like, you can, I can sense their, their frustration in not being affirmed as being right. Right. And so they're just now starting to like poke and become more pointed and say, you know what, I'm just going to, you are wicked and this is why look at your situation. And they're not even, they're not even offering comparison or grace is what it feels like. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's it's just funny to me that I, I mean that's it's human tendency. How many times do I get in arguments and I get frustrated? So then, then we become pointed. Mm -hmm. It's like you know what you suck, and this is why you suck. And and you kind of list a bunch of things that are in the moment real but not. And so I just think it's funny that you can see that the humanity rise up. Well, it's even like the first rule that they teach you in debate class is not that I ever took debate class, but <laughs> um, like the second you see someone arguing the person instead of the idea they lost. Yep. Like, and that's what kind of what the friends start doing is that the idea is kind of, I mean, and it, you can kind of see here, they're still kind of arguing the idea of like, listen, Job, here's what we know happens to the wicked. Here's what's happening to you. And then by the time we get to the third cycles, it's just straight up attacks on Job himself. And they, yeah, they really don't hold back. Game so, on. Yeah. We'll, we'll get there listeners next week. Um, and then finally in chapter 16, we get the first half of Job's reply to Eliphaz where he gets, and I just love like, there's a lot of sarcasm in Job, which is one of my love languages. Um, obviously, what? God, yeah, Yahweh at the very end has just the best, like, sarcastic reply. But throughout the whole book, there's a bunch of digs that get in there. Um, and this is one that, this is how El or how Job answers Eliphaz. He says, I have heard many th such things, miserable comforters. <laughs> Are you all? Shall windy words have an end or what provokes you to answer? So basically there he's saying, first off, thanks for the comfort, pal. And then he's he, such a good friend. And then he goes, speaking of the East wind, will your windy words have no end? So basically after everything Eliphaz just said, Job is essentially saying all of what you said is just worthless in wind as well. Um, he says, I also could speak as you do. If you were in my place, I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and solace and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged for if I forbear how much of it leaves me, surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company. So really he's just talking about <laughs> He's like, look, what you're doing right now, it's not that hard, Eliphaz. Like if you were suffering, I could come to your house and tell you how wicked you were. Like don't act like you're this, this profound man who's revealing truth to me. Like he's really just – you can tell he's getting fed up with it. And then I just love the – surely God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company because who's his company? It's <laughs> Eliphaz. It's Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And he's just like, yeah, you guys are just a bunch of worthless East Winders. Keep talking. Thanks a lot, friends. So funny. And that's and that's Job this week. Yeah, that's that's where we end. <laughs> On that which, note. <laughs> which I know I remember uh, when we were first getting into the podcast the last couple of weeks, um, offline, there was a conversation just of, we almost we almost leave Job week over week with a podcast in kind of some disappointing or like discouraging down moments. Yeah. Um, but that's Job. Like that. that's the bulk of Job is these discouraging down moments. And I love the authenticity and the, I mean, it's humanity. I mean, you see Job in these sarcastic 
uh, rebuttals that are, are meant to be pointed digs because he's just as hurt and or annoyed and frustrated. And then he's getting come. And so it's just, you just see a lot of the humanity, but at the end of the day, it's, it's really the story as a whole is really significant to us today. And so, um, so it kind of leaves us in these downer moments, but, um, it's, it's going to continue oh, <laughs> in yeah. the coming weeks. Well, it's, um, it, uh, yeah. One last thing on Joe, like and we said this last week, but it's so honest yeah. with grief because if you've ever walked with someone who's walking through grief or if you yourself has ever walked through grief, it's not, people kind of think of it as you get really low and then you just kind of get better and better and better and better until you're good. Yeah. And really it's a roller coaster. Yep. Like you have good moments, you have bad moments, you have moments like in same with Job, right? He has moments where he says, I know that my redeemer lives, even though he's slain me yet, will I serve him? And then he has really low moments where he's, I wish I was never born. I wish God would just kill me. Like, and, and they're all intermingled. It's not like the triumphant moments are at the end mm-hmm. and the low moments are at the beginning. It's, it's a really true picture of a man processing through extreme grief. Yeah. And I love the honesty that's in the Bible there. Yeah. And I, and I, as much as the friends get a bad rap, and I know you said this last week, um, I do think there is something significant about being present. Yeah. You know, the seven days of silence. I think there's something significant about in the midst of grief. Cause, and, and I say this from, from, I guess, a pastoral perspective in the sense of like, when we have friends that are suffering and going through deep grief, oftentimes we feel ill-equipped or unprepared to be able to meet them and help them. But the greatest help we can offer sometimes is not words that we speak, the presence that we, we give and just being present, just loving, just sharing. I mean, I, I think it's really important to understand the value of, of, of proximity um, and I think that that's one of the things that the friends for all of the, 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 the frustrated angles they take, they're, they're trying to be present. And I think that's a big, big deal. Well, so as we continue in the podcast, uh, we're going to hit some Psalms this week. I think we've got five in total. Uh, and so I'm just going to give us a quick overview of each Psalm, uh, as, cause we're going to be reading them, like I said, this week. So, um, we start with Psalm 56 this week, uh, and this is a Psalm that we can take to be an individual lament, but also, uh, as a Psalm. Uh, of anticipated thanksgiving. In other words, it's it's anticipating God's provision and the thankfulness that comes with it. Um, so it's not just a lament and a crying out for, you know, God, this is my situation, but God, I love you and appreciate you. It's it's the intention and the anticipation of thanksgiving. It, the description of troubles and prayers taken up into gratitude that God's, God has heard, which I think this is so cool. God has heard them heard the individual, heard the, the, the group, um, and he will act. So it's an anticipation and a trust that God is, is listening. God hears you, um, but God will also act on your behalf. Uh, so that's the picture of Psalm 56. Psalm 8 is a hymn of praise uh, where God's people celebrate their privileged place in God's created order. And this is not, I'm better than everybody else, but it's as God's creation, His His as humanity created in his image, there is a, a privileged place in the created order of things. Uh, and so Psalm 8 celebrates that uh, unique placement. Um, psalm 35 is the third psalm. It shows it, it's a psalm that shows how the faithful should pray uh, when they know that malicious people are seeking to harm them. Uh, and the prayer will recount uh, the different evil schemes of the persecutors and will ask God to fight on behalf uh, of his faithful ones. Um, psalm 118 is a joyful song of thanksgiving. Uh, they praise God for his faithfulness, then moves on to a personal testimony of God's rescue from distress. Uh, so we're going to see that that picture play out in Psalm 118. Uh, and then finally this week, we're going to be reading Psalm 41. Um, and this is, is a lament uh, in which a person uh, who fulfills his responsibility to the poor, but yet is suffering severely, prays for God's help and vindication. Uh, and so not only is he fulfilling the, the responsibilities as a righteous person to care for the poor, but he himself or they themselves uh, are suffering severely and prays for God to help and vindicate them. Um, it describes a serious illness that can be applied more generally if the illness is taken as simply one example of severe suffering. Boy, that sounds, uh, that sounds familiar. Oh, Job. oh like, man. This is all Job. No. Um, so again, there is, there. that's what, oh, that's the, ironically, that's the last Psalm we're going to read this week. So we kind of end with the book of Job and uh, the book of Psalms as kind of a, a, a downer, so to speak. Uh, but again, the thing that we've said about the Psalms coming in to not just this year, but I think we've said over the, the last several years um, is Psalms is a really great book to learn how to pray honestly, learn how to engage God honestly, because God um, God doesn't need you to pretend like you're something you're not. God doesn't need to pretend like your circumstance is perfect. So he'll listen to you, but it's it's the authentic, honest, raw moments of life. And not only does Job reveal this, but I think Psalms reveals it as well, as well as 
Lamentations reveals it. In different books of the Bible, you'll see different prophets and different stories. But um, I, I love that Psalms helps us identify ways that we can be praying in the midst of different circumstances. Uh, and so that's that's Psalm 41. Those are the Psalms we're going to hit this week. Just wanted to give you a quick overview as we look to kind of wrap up this podcast. But before we do, there is a question we want to take time to answer. One question came in from a dear listener, and it says, it stuck out to me recently that Caleb was from the tribe of Judah and Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. Is it coincidental or is this the reason why Judah was the tribe of kings and Jesus and Ephraim was the was in the prophetic words as meaning the 10 tribes who made up the northern kingdoms of Israel? Huh, that's interesting. That's thought. a fun question. The, so I looked, in, I looked into it a little bit. I don't, well, so first off, I don't think Caleb is the reason that Judah is the um, yeah, I would agree. Tribe of the that. Kings. I think it's more of a David fulfillment uh, and Jesus and anything else. Um, but it actually, one thing I didn't realize is that Jeroboam, who is the first king of the Northern Kingdom, is from the tribe of Ephraim. And Rehoboam, who is the huh. last king of the United Israel, is from the tribe of Judah. So it actually adds in a whole nother kind of layer of sadness that here's the two tribes of Joshua and Caleb who are kind of just the twin. These guys are sick together conquering yeah. Canaan. Sick um, is a good thing yeah, in that a context. Good, a good a sick. great thing, yes. Um, but now all of a sudden these two tribes are breaking apart the kingdom of Is- of Israel through and through their descendants. Yeah. This would be Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So yeah, I don't that's know. That's a sad layer for sure. Yeah, it kind of adds a little bit there. Um and then yeah, Ephraim kind of becomes the leading tribe of the north, mostly because it's the tribe of the first king. So mm-hmm. it kind of makes sense that that tribe would be, the, like you said, in the prophetic words about the northern Israel, about the northern kingdom, it's oftentimes called Ephraim, just Ephraim, like the other southern kingdom would be called Judah. Um, so that's kind of the way it works yep. there. But yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily the reason why. Yeah, it's but not a it, direct correlation. Right. But. but it is an interesting, it's an interesting layer to the the relation of those two tribes yeah. as we see it deteriorate over the course of yep. the Old Testament. Agreed. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, hey, thanks for listening, listeners. Yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks. For, thanks for putting up with my loopy mind today <laughs> and my, my shot voice. Uh, but this is a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find all of our other podcasts and resources on our website, grove.church. And that new podcast we were talking about, that launches... Next Sunday, not Sunday. The launch is next week, though. Ooh, so yeah, it's gonna drop. Ready. I don't. Think we actually we... didn't talk about it last week. No, we didn't. But I, you know, I'm trying to like layer it out a little. We're bit. trying to leak the vision of it, and it's coming. Uh, but it's gonna be a fun and a fun addition uh, to our podcast repertoire, if you will, as a Grove Church. But there you go. Get ready to listen to something new. And if this podcast but don't stop listening to us. Ooh. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you'd like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website, grove.church. There's a gift button in the upper right-hand corner. But thanks for listening, everybody. And before I say goodbye, I just want to say thanks for listening along with us. I've told Evan this a few times. I just feel like it's been a really kind of fun last few months of just people engaging, dropping comments, dropping reviews, and just telling us how much they're enjoying it. Uh, it just it's just fun to do that so I love to see the community grow so I just want to say thanks to all of our wonderful listeners out there whether you've left a review or not you're great and I appreciate you like crazy uh, with that I hope you have a great day and we'll talk at you next week